Welcome to the Father Effect Podcast. Stories about the lifelong impact fathers have on men, women, and families. Here's your host, John Finch. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for the Father Effect Podcast, brought to you by the Father Effect Movie. If you're a first-time listener, you can find out more about the movie and me at thefathereffect.com. I'm your host, John Finch, and today I will be joined by Stephen Mansfield. Stephen is a New York Times best-selling author of several books, including The Faith of George Bush, The Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, The Faith of Barack Obama, Choosing Donald Trump, Killing Jesus, and many others. Stephen is a fascinating man who has a plethora of knowledge on so many different subjects. In this interview, he talks candidly about growing up in Berlin as a military brat, forgiving betrayal, his regrets as a father, toxic masculinity, and the biggest struggle for men today. We will also talk briefly about two of his other books entitled Mansfield's Book of Manly Men and Building Your Band of Brothers. By the way, if you want to reach me, I'm at The Father Effect on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you're brand new to the show, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Now here's my interview with Stephen Mansfield. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for being on the show today, brother. Greatly appreciate you. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I was born in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, my father was an army officer, so we were down there at Fort Benning. Uh, grew up mainly in Europe. Uh, that's where my father was assigned. He was a special forces, military intelligence kind of guy. So uh, one of the most defining episodes in my life was growing up in Berlin during the Cold War. So I, I literally lived behind the Iron Curtain. Um, became a Christian when I was 18. I'd been the big high school jock, became a Christian when I was 18, went to a Christian school, uh, and then uh, pastored for 20 years after that out in West Texas, and uh, then pastored for another decade in Nashville. But I was the kind of guy who always knew he wouldn't pastor forever. So uh, I, I love pastoring, love the church, but I just wanted to get into culture. I wanted to have an impact in DC. I wanted to get on the campuses. I wanted to write and do media. So long about 2002, made a transition, began to write, uh, was fortunate with my books, had some big sellers, and uh, that kind of positioned me, you know, to be able to speak in media, write more books, do a lot of, do a lot of traveling and speaking. And uh, my wife and I have also started, got a, got a foot in the church world, a foot in business, uh, a lot of work nationally. I work with the Kurds. I lecture in Saudi Arabia, believe it or not. So I have kind of a diverse life right now. Right now, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. My wife and I also spend half our year in Nashville. So kind of music, country music world, you know, uh, music world in Nashville, but then political world in D.C. So that's kind of my world right now. I love me some Nashville, man. Nashville. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's hard to beat. And being a pastor, you know, I've gotten to meet several pastors over the, the last eight years or so and in, in starting our ministry and, and doing the stuff with the Father Effect. And, man, that is an anointed uh just blessed group you got to have a special calling don't you to do that it's just it's crazy you too and i was really fortunate i didn't start the church i pastored in, in nashville but uh but i you know got into it and had a fantastic team and i really you know i've got my gifts obviously you know i'm speak or whatever but i mean i couldn't do i you know the majority of what needed to be done in that church but i just had a great team around me and uh, we, we were able to accomplish some wonderful things together. So it, it really made me see the, uh, what some people call kingdom teaming, you know, 
uh, sure. that God just put the right people in the right place at the right time. Bunch of crazies, but we had a good time. So tell me a little bit more about Europe and growing up over there. What, what was the biggest impact for you coming from that culture, but uh, initially being an American? Yeah, very profound to grow up in the military. First of all, those of your listeners who are military brats will know that that's, that's an unusual thing. And I'm a little bit older than maybe a lot of your audience. So uh, I was in the military or military brat at a time when they moved you a lot. We, we moved every year uh, for eight years straight, for example. Uh, you know, that was, they don't do that as much now. They tend to, they tend to realize family. But, but living behind the Iron Curve, living in Germany, being an expat, so to speak, looking at America and Western culture from a European perspective, and also, you know, being under threat. I mean, I, when I was in Germany in my high school years, and some of your audience won't remember this, but the, the Munich Olympics in 1972 is when the uh, Israeli wrestling team was killed by terrorists. Um, the Badr-Meinhof gang threatened to blow up our high school almost every week. Uh, you know, and, behind, and we were behind the Iron Curtain. So my father was constantly on alert, and choppers always overhead. And so you know, you're growing up not just on a military base, but in a high secure area, you know, that's really under threat in the news all the time. And so it made me more aware of international affairs, made me more aware of the value of freedom and what you have to pay, the price you have to pay for it. Uh, made me more aware of the spiritual differences, even though I wasn't a Christian in those days, to walk around West Berlin, see its prosperity, see it, feel its spirit, look over the wall into dismal, dark East Berlin, which was communist territory. You just saw those two value systems displayed right side by side. So it profoundly affected me, profoundly affected me. Learn to appreciate your freedom much, much more, huh? You do. You do. And I think also growing up, you know, Berlin's a gigantic city. Um, and my mother was quite the artist, quite the literary person, took us to all the museums, took us to, you know, all the sites. So I had a real uh, broad intellectual background, not just because I was in Europe, but because of my parents' influence. And, really, really set me up to appreciate freedom, really set me up for intellectual things, really set me up to understand cultures, um, and by the way, love ethnic food. So I, I, it was good in every way. <laughs> That's cool. So you talked about your mom, and let's jump into that real quick. Sure. As as your parents are concerned. What, what's, uh, what's one of the most important things that your parents taught you growing up? You know, I think, uh, though it can go too far, both my parents were achievement and accomplishment oriented. Uh, my mother even probably made a mistake. I think she'd read some child rearing book early in life. And when I would take a drawing to her as a little boy, she'd go, that's good, but you can do better. Now, I don't think most child psychologists today would recommend that. She'd probably read some trendy 50s kind of, um, you know, child psychologist and parenting guide. Um, but still, it was good for me to think, well, how can I improve? And then, of course, my father was all about sports and achievement, rising in the ranks and doing your best. And, you know, he's basically General Patton, you know, do your best, give your all, leave it all in the field, accomplish, get better grades. Why are you getting B's? So on the one hand, there's no question. I mean, I'll, I'll admit, honestly, a little bit of drivenness in that home, a little bit of over, over accomplishment, overachieving kind of culture. But it was good for me. It was good for me because I'm you know, the way I try to tell people is I'm, I'm split right down the middle. The one side is a lazy bum who wants to sit on the couch all day and watch TV. The other side is a workaholic and they're constantly making deals with each other. <laughs> okay, I'll do this, but there's got to be a hamburger on the other side, you know? And so, uh, uh, I, so I get a lot done, but I also rest and I've got a wife who's great about those things. So anyway, that's the culture I come from. You know what? I've never heard anybody describe my life that way, just like you just described. Yeah. 
dude, I am the same way. It's like, there's this guy that just wants to chill and whatever. And then, especially on the weekends, but then it's like, I got stuff to do. And I feel like I'm always, you know, running, moving, shaking, whatever. So, uh, tell me now, tell me as it relates to uh, your family, how about siblings? How many brothers, sisters, anything like that? I've got one brother, one sister. My sister's five years younger than I am. My brother's nine years younger than I am. He's uh, what they call the military Vietnam baby in the sense that right before my father went to Vietnam in 67, my parents conceived him. It was not uncommon for military couples to go, well, I'm not going to see you for a year. We don't know if you're going to die. Uh, let's have another child. And so he's no less loved, but he's, but he's, that's why he's nine years younger. You usually don't have a, you know, a sibling that's almost a decade younger than the oldest, but, uh, but that's what's going on in my family. So love my brother very much. Good man. Uh, he's in gas products around the Atlanta area and does very, very well. Very, very well. Very cool. So what has been your biggest struggle and how did you overcome it? You know, probably my biggest struggle uh, in my life, for, for some reason I can't quite explain, I think I, think I got to have some insight into it, has been uh, to forgive. Uh, and I know that that's one of the big fat ones. Anybody who's conscientious about their life, you know, I have a hard time forgiving. But for some reason, I, th I think because I did grow up in a, in, a, in a loving, definitely my parents loved me and were great parents. But, it, but my father was a bit harsh, uh, a bit, you know, if you've seen the movie The Great Santini, that was sort of my father, constantly coaching, constantly pushing. You know, if we played basketball, he was going to beat me. He wasn't going to coach me. So I may have grown up with a little bit of tenderness, a little bit of, you know, uh, hypersensitivity might be the better term to criticism, to uh, anything negative. And as I've gone through life, it's been as though my soul is wrapped in Velcro. Any offense sticks. And I don't consider myself a small or petty person. In fact, I'm, I'm usually the guy saying, ah, it doesn't matter, let's move on. Um, but when it comes to betrayal, when it comes to offense, when it comes to something that's been said about me that hurts me, uh, I, I have to admit to a hypersensitivity about that. And I have to admit to nurturing those things, hanging on to those things, sitting up at night and going and thinking, I'll just sneak up on him and whoop him kind of thing, you know. And uh, it's not good for your soul. It's not good for your imagination. It's not good for your other relationships. And so you asked me how I got over it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that I'm completely victorious over. You know, we, all, we, we, we some of these things we wrestle forever. And I, I still have to watch it. I mean, I'm largely free, but I have to watch it. The main thing I've done is that, that somebody taught me is to do what I call find the hook of compassion. So if you hurt me, let's, I don't know what, let's say you don't, you don't, I don't know, I won't even, I don't want to bring up anything specific. I don't, it's certainly nothing between you and me, but I don't even want to mention anything and say it in the air. Let's just say you hurt me, someone, you betray me, you went off with another friend, you take something from me. The way that I've been able to forgive is to think about you and think, what is it about him that would have made him do that? Can I, can I find some compassion place? Let me use my father for an example. So my father, good man, war hero, home every night, didn't abuse us in any way, just harsh verbally, just harsh in his demands. Okay. So I can hate him for the rest of my life or the things maybe he said or, the, or things like that uh, and, and the hardness that he put inside of me. But then I can go, you know, did, did he know any different? Did he, wasn't he raised the same way? Wasn't that his culture? I mean, the same thing that made him a war hero maybe made him a little bit of a rough father. Come on, Stephen, you can let that go. He didn't beat you. You never wonder if he was coming in your room at night. He didn't get drunk and smack everybody around. He was a good man, noble man, just harsh as a father. 
can't you find a place of compassion for him? Uh, because he came from, from rather demanding, domineering parents, uh, Southern Georgia parents. Uh, can't, you, can't you say, look, he, he did the best he could do, and I love him, and I'm glad he was my father, and I can let him off the hook if he was, if he was too demanding of me in those years. Hey, by the way, didn't that have a good impact in my life? You know? Those would be the twin things. The, the, the combination of not being uh, as forgiving, quick, quick to hang on to an offense, uh, to holding on to it too long, which I don't like about myself. But then the thing that's helped me is finding the hook of compassion. Uh, what, what's, go what's going on in their lives? That, even if somebody I don't know, some kid steals something from my car or whatever. And I go, well, that, that's the culture he comes from. You know, that's, that's what he knows. That's, 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 that's what he's got around him. So yeah, I don't want to be stolen from. I don't want to be stupid. But I can forgive him because I, I try to find some place of compassion for his life. And that's made a big difference for me. You know, brother, I hear you. The, the trust factor for me, that's been a, a big struggle for me over the many years because of my dad and his suicide and the abandonment that I've dealt with. It's like I have an issue with trusting people. And it's yeah. just been one of those things I've continued to work on time and time and time again. Is your dad still alive? No, my father passed away some years ago. Uh, passed away. He was about 83 when he passed away. And he's buried in a federal cemetery down in Alabama. So uh, I'll go visit his grave soon. But, but uh, no, he's a good man. And we had, we had a, a warm relationship later in life. You know, he just, it was just the way he was at the time, you know. And, and I used to tell my kids, because he loved his grandkids, you can imagine. And I used to say, this is not your, your grandfather. Martians came and took your grandfather away. And this man is like the spirit of Santa Claus has come back on earth, you know, or something. But I was just playing, of course, because he was so gentle and loving and sweet. And, you know, he'd sit and watch an entire TV show with my, with my big old, you know, daughter in his lap, you know. And I'm like, when did you ever put me in your lap, you know. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, he's a good man. But uh, that's, that's been a good thing for me to learn. Sure. I, I talk to men all the time, especially the older men. And it's funny because it's like they, they get a second chance to be that dad as a grandfather. Yes. Right? They, they know kind of where they made the mistakes as a father. And so they're like trying to make up for it as a grandfather. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's also easier. You know, I mean, he, my, my kids come in. I'm taking care of all the problems. They go in and see their grandfather. and They're just nothing but a delight. They're sweet. You know, they clean up whatever mess they made. You know, he didn't, he didn't have to teach them how to be polite. He didn't have to get them to mow the yard. He didn't have to get them to get good grades. So he can just be free. And it was sweet to watch. It was sweet to watch. That's so cool. We do this and kind of back to that because he was a military dad, that type of thing. And, and we do this part in the film and the father effect. And it's, it's an amazingly powerful piece where we talk about how your earthly father influences who you believe your heavenly father to be. And one of the, one of the comparisons, if you will, is you have that, and I'm not saying your father was this way, but you have that angry, over-disciplined style father who's very performance-based love and the, the benchmark's so high that uh, who knows if you'll ever be able to attain it. And as kids, we grow up and we look at that and we transfer that to our heavenly father. So if, if our dad's that way, we automatically think God's that way in many cases. If he's that distant or aloof father, yeah. it's, you know, I only go to him when I really need him. They transfer that to Heavenly Father. Did you, any of those traits from your, from your dad, did you transfer that to God and how you responded to him? 
I did. I did. Uh, again, my father was a good, good man, uh, but very demanding. He demanded a lot of himself. He demanded a lot of me. And for whatever reason, my, my Christian life, since I became a believer, uh, I mean, as I often say to my wife and others, you know, I don't spend my days breaking rocks with a sledgehammer, but I have had to work hard in my life. It's been a combination of the leadership positions I've held, the schedule I keep, uh, you know, I, I spent some years in Texas and down there, the Cowboys say, boy, he's rode hard and put up with, which means, you know, that they, they worked him hard. And there are days that I feel uh, worked hard and a little bit of self-pity can sneak in. And what I realize is that, that uh, first of all, I enjoy working hard. But second of all, I, if I'm not careful, I can resent that from God. Um, I can, I can, you know, feel... Uh, a little bit like I'm overworked and it's on him when normally I'm overworked and it's on me, <laughs> you know, uh, I like to work. I like to produce. I like to impact people. I like to, I, my, my work involves a lot of travel, a lot of early mornings, a lot of on the plane at five 30 in the morning or whatever. And uh, so as a result, uh, you know, I can go, well, Lord, you could lighten up on me a little bit. And then I, then I realize this, this isn't his doing, you know, he's not a harsh taskmaster. So yeah, I can, I can let Lieutenant Colonel Lee Mansfield, um, suddenly replace God uh, in my thinking, and I have to lighten up on both of them. My father was harsh when he needed to be and firm, um, but I can, I'm in control of my life now under God's hand, and I can, I can lighten it up and make sure I get a Sabbath in and make sure I've got the, you know, the time I want and love with my wife and all of that. So, um, but I definitely have had a tendency to see God as the harsh coach might be the, the image I'm going for. Um, rather than the, 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 more, the more father figure who, yeah, puts me through my paces when he needs to, but isn't just beating the tar out of me 24-7. I just had the conversation with my oldest daughter, uh, and, and I don't know where. I think she got this from me because I had struggled with this for many years and still to a degree have to overcome this. It's, it's almost seeing God as judge. He's up there with a big gavel, and it's yeah. like, okay, Finch, I'm going to punish you today <laughs> you know? right, or right. I'm going to reward you because you've been doing this, 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 and this. And there's times I find myself going, okay, God, why is all this junk happening to me? Am I not reading my Bible enough? Am I not praying enough? All this stuff. So it becomes that, you know, I see him as a judge and my daughter, unfortunately, I think it's been kind of been passed down to her somehow, some way. I think I got that, that vision of, of what that God is like by looking at other people's fathers and somehow forming that own opinion myself. And so it's something we just had the conversation and I'm trying to encourage her. Look, God's for you. He's not against right. you. Right. right? And, and, I, and, I, and I have no problem believing that God's for me. He loves me. He's, he's destined me. He's ordained things in my path. You know, as Ephesians two says, you know, he's, he's already created great works for us to accomplish. I, I believe all that. I've, I've talked a lot about destiny. But I don't talk enough about rest. Uh, I've had to learn that when you look at the total amount of rest that God commanded for his people, uh, his old covenant people, it was a lot of rest in the course of a year. Uh, and, not, and you take every seventh year off and every 50th year, you know, it, it just, it's about the length of mine. I would have had entire years of rest. And so... Um, all of that to say, I've had to learn that God is a God of rest and that, and I've read the scriptures about Sabbath and the old covenant and, and, um, and 
realized that God was saying, look, I want you to, I want, this is not just an act of physical rest. This is an act of you trusting me that I'll get this stuff done without you having to work. So all of that's been very good for me. But, but when I'm not standing guard over that part of my soul, I can feel road hard and put up wet, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Is there one thing that you wish you could do over again? Uh, yes. Uh, I was a good father. I have, I've, my, my children are now 32 and 28, and we love each other. I was just with them yesterday up in New York. Uh, love them dearly. We all get along very, very well and love each other. But I look back and wish that I'd been a different kind of father. Uh, I, was, I, was, I would give myself a B plus but I'd like to have been an A plus and the A plus would have been slowing down a little bit, a little, little bit more time, a um, little bit more, uh, you know, pulling away. I was pastoring a gigantic church at that time, you know, what, what they called the States of mega church uh, of that size, which means over 2000. I'm not going to get specific, but uh, it's always busy. And I didn't take that time from my kids. I spent time with them. I kept, you know, home, was involved in their homeschooling and all kinds of things. But um, when I look back, I wish I'd taken more time. I wish I'd taken my son away individually and take my daughter away, just the two of us, more. So it would have been more of the same, but still, that's what I wish I had done. It's just more of what I, of what I did. Because, you know, once they go off to college and grow up, get married, and move away, uh, you're still close, but you can't, you can't make that time up again. I've got a, my 19-year-old, 17-year-old, and I have a 12-year-old and uh, all girls and my 12 year old i'm learning more and more and more because one of the regrets i have and then let's face it if we're being honest but we all have regrets right sure sure <laughs> and it's one of those things where i wished i would have just taken those moments and similar to what you said just soak it up be in the moment not yeah. always be thinking about what i have to do or work or whatever it's like just be in the moment with your kids and, and appreciate those the special times you know that that god's God's arranging, uh, and I think I just overlooked those so much, right. you know? Right. Yeah, there are things now I look back and I go, why didn't I do that? Like, uh, when my son became, uh, turned 13, he and I went for a, about a four-day trip, and we listened to Dr. Dobson tapes about adolescence and sex and things like that, and had great conversations. Was, well, he remembers that to this day. Well, I should have done a four-day trip with each of my kids at least once a year, if not every six months. I look back now and I go, I was in charge. You know, all I could have made that call without any problem. I just didn't. Um, now we did all kinds of things, vacations and trips and my kids, you know, I don't want to paint the picture like they were neglected. But from this vantage point, looking at it, looking back at it from where I am now, um, I wish that I had done more of that kind of thing. My daughter and I on a four day road trip, going somewhere she wanted to go, talking about anything she wanted to talk about, whatever she wants to do facials at night fine you know I'll stay in the hotel room and we'll do fate whatever just being in their world being with them i wish i'd done more of that kind of thing so uh, that that's that's my main lesson i mean i was already influenced by good parents i was already influenced by dr dobson and other good teachers of, of, of good family life um and i had the means to do those things uh, and I had the help at this chart, uh, this church I pastored, but I didn't do as much of that as I should have. That would be my main encouragement. It doesn't have to be expensive. It could, you know, I know one guy who's, you know, just getting started in life, just getting together, but he's got a child at maybe 10 years old. And he, uh, he tells his wife, you're going away this weekend for four days. Do what you want. Go see your mother, go on a trip, go whatever. But the house is mine. And he stays in the house with the kids. 
and they sleep on the floor and they make a mess and they eat, you know, who knows what they eat, probably going to kill them, but they, but they have a great time and there's a lot of closeness. So that's the kind of stuff I should have done more of. You know, dude, I, I really appreciate your authenticity and just the honesty there. Cause it, it's, it's one of those things, like even for me, I'm the same way. It's my kids. I see them all the time. They're always like, mom, when are you coming home? You know, she'll go on a weekend getaway sure. and they're, that's, I can't eat another peanut butter jelly sandwich. She's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah. down, they're kind of like, well, this is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let me we ask had, we you. Had, we had great times, but I, I wish I'd made more of them. Let's jump in. You wrote a book, uh, The Book of Manly Men. And yes. man, I, I just, I love uh, the book and I love what you're doing there. And, and obviously you've written several other books and you've got such a diverse uh, book collection that you've written and, and I love it. But specifically with the book of Manly Men, let's talk, what is it that you think from uh, a man's perspective, what's the biggest struggle? men have today? Well, I think there's two things. I think most men don't have models of noble manhood around them. Now, I had part of that having a noble military father. You know, the military has is a lot about honor. It's a lot about, you know, sacrifice. It's a lot about the virtues that you care about as a man. Um, it was less about the warm side. It was less about the, the real, you know, invested side of fathering. Um, so most men don't have models. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, that, that book you mentioned, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, uh, lists out four maxims that I think every man needs to get a hold of if he's going to start making the journey towards maximum or, or what I call great manhood. But then I have a lot of vignettes of uh, various people throughout history, you know, Booker T. Washington, and Churchill and Roosevelt. And I tell unusual stories. Most people have not heard about those people. And my, my point is to, to put models of, of noble manhood in front of uh, people who have not had them. But the other thing, and this is, this is probably for me the most important thing, um, I've written a little booklet to go with that booklet called Building Your Band of Brothers. I, I, you know, 200 years ago, our ancestors had a, a tribe of men built in. Whatever you, whoever your ancestors are ethnically and historically and geographically, mine, you know, they lived in a village or they lived in a, in a, in a town or they lived in a tribe and, and they had, manhood was built in. They probably had large families. They had grandpas and uncles and you know, it took a bunch of guys on the frontier to raise the, you know, barn or, or bring in the crops or, you know, in a Native American context to run the tribe to do the hunting and all that kind of, whatever context you're talking about. Today, though, we tend to get isolated. We tend to, you know, work jobs and live in our homes and get busy with the wife and the kids and all that. Most men don't have a band of brothers. Surveys show that the average guy uh, can't name a best friend. The average guy in America today can't name a best friend. And by the way, doesn't know who he would call at three in the morning. If his wife was having some kind of crisis in the home, uh, she's flitting around in her 90. Who do you trust who's going to go over there and handle that with character when you're out of town on a business trip? Most guys have nobody. So I'm a big advocate of the fact we've got to be intentional about building a band of brothers. And so the, the, to answer your question directly, the average guy lacks a band of brothers who are partners with him in the great project of becoming noble men. And therefore, he lacks the thing that is at the heart of band of brothers, which is um, the free fire zone. Free fire zone, as I teach it, is that it's the it's us agreeing together that we're going to say anything that needs to be said, confront each other on anything that needs to be confronted to make us better men. So you and I are hanging out at lunch and you hear me on the cell phone. I have some bitter, angry phone call with my wife, a cell phone call with my wife. You can say, dude, what's up with that now? Tell me what's going on. You got a great wife. That's not the man you want to be. You were just rude. Tell me what's up. 
or you see me gaining 40 pounds or, you know, it's okay with you and I, if I have one glass of wine, but one night you notice I'm having four, what's going on with that? Or it's okay for me to have three Oreos, but when I eat the whole bag, you know, whatever the thing is dropping the F bomb or whatever, whatever the moral deformity is you and I are walking closely enough and we've got a free fire zone. So you can confront me and make me a better man. I think most men don't have that kind of peer coaching that a band of brothers provides. And uh, when you combine that with the lack of models, the lack of what we're shooting for in the first place, um, I think most guys are living alone and living aimless. You know, the, the one thing I try to encourage guys, and I learned this when we interviewed John Eldridge for the movie, he talked exactly about what you're talking about. We guys just don't have good friends. I mean, we have friends, but they're all kind of superficial. Hey man, what's right. up? You know, you know, how's the family or whatever, but we don't have guys who know our junk. They right. know our right. stuff with pornography or alcohol or whatever, all our, all our stuff. And so why do you think that is? Why, why do guys not have good friends? Well, part of it is that, uh, you know, guys tend to hunker down and pull away from other guys when they don't know what else to do. You know how that is. You know, first thing you do when you get hurt is you just you cut off communication with everybody. The other thing is, though, I don't think that we're teaching the, the building of a band of brothers, the making of, of deep friendships um, as, a, as something to be transmitted from generation to generation. You know, I grew up in the mil- as a military brat. My father was a friendly man, had a, was a real man's man. Guys liked him. But we moved every year. So I never saw my father maintain friendships over 30 years or 10 years or five years. You know, I, I, I never watched him have a friend. I never watched a friend confront him and say, you know, Lee, you need to not, you sh- should be talking that way or whatever. So that, that wasn't something that I learned how to do. So I later had to learn how to do it intentionally. Some guys ca- taught me how to do that, how to, how to connect with other men, how to open your life how not to be so so hypersensitive that if some guy says, dude, your language stinks, that's not who you want to be. Let me talk to you about this. Let's work this through together. I'm going to hold you accountable. That I don't just blow up and cut him off forever and you know, be offended with him for the rest of my life. That I'm open to that kind of thing. So it's funny, us guys will do that. Like you, know, you and I go out and have a pickup basketball game with four or five other guys. Uh, immediately we start coaching each other. Throw the ball, man. Don't hog it. Hey, shoot from out there. You got a good shot. Pass it off. Make two passes before we shoot the shot. We don't even we don't even know each other's names, but we're coaching each other. But we'll have dear friends, and somehow the rules, you know, especially in the South, like, well, I would never want to hurt his feelings, you know. Or out west, we're supposed to be the marble man, all individual and never. Or, up, or Yankees up north are supposed to be unemotional and not invested in the personal stuff. I got to tell you, I've got a band of guys around me, and they'll talk to me about anything, anytime. They don't ask permission. And they also love Bev, and Bev knows you get in trouble, you call one of these guys. You know what I'm saying? I screw up, you call one of these guys. I mean, I got guys who will land on me and whoop my backside. And also correct me in the smaller things. I mean, just to, I mean, it didn't have to be a big intervention. We were just having a hamburger. I've had guys say, you know, you don't want to talk that way, or you don't want to use that word, or be careful about that. People are going to misunderstand what you're thinking. And we go right on. Um, but I'll tell you, 15, 20 years ago, I would have been offended and probably broken off that relationship. So I had to learn how to stay in the game, how to learn how to have a band of brothers. And it's just counter to nature. It's counter to how we're coached. It's counter to the whole Marlboro man, individualistic man in his cave kind of thing. But I need my guys around me. I need guys who have a 3D view on me and I'm a better man for it. That's awesome. There was a guy, Gordon Dalby, who's on the West Coast, who we interviewed. He did uh, Healing the Masculine Soul. He's a good man. He is a stud. I love sitting and, and he spent probably two and a half hours with me when we interviewed him. And, and one of the stories he told, which I thought was fascinating, was, you know, as our young boys are growing up, uh, they're four, five, six years old out on the soccer field. 
And from a very early age, they fall down. We're telling them, suck it up, man up. You're okay. Get up, stop crying, whatever. Yeah. And he, and he tells this great story about, well, those same four and five year old young boys grow up to be men that are then still not showing their emotions, not showing right. the real issues and things that they're struggling with. And so then we wonder why men and women are getting divorced at crazy rates because men can't communicate because they've yeah. been told all their life, not be real, right? Not to right. be real. What do you think? Is that something that, that has played out in what you see in, in the struggle with men and women? Oh, there's no question about it. You know, uh, just recently, I won't go into detail, but just recently, but I've had about three or four situations where men were in public in some way and were terrified they might cry. And in my opinion, first of all, I cry fairly freely. I mean, I was recording an audio book the other day and started talking about Patton and General Pershing and started to tear up. I had to stop the audio recording and come back, you know. Then we did something about my father. I teared up again. And by the way, my wife's my producer. So she's on the other side of the glass going, okay, honey, when well, you can pull it together. But uh, no, she was great. But all that to say, uh, I think that we've had, uh, it's almost like a curse. I don't mean to be over spiritual with it. It's almost like we passed down this idea that men shouldn't show their emotions. Well, I don't want to just blubber through my whole day. That would mean some kind of emotional imbalance. But, you know, for me to tear up right now, talking about maybe my father passing away, that's perfectly normal, you know? And, uh, and, and I think that we have had too much of don't show your emotions. I'll tell you the main thing about that, though, let's quickly say that men mask hurt with anger. So when men are normally what we call angry men are hurt men. And it's not really socially appropriate for me just to dissolve in tears and go, he hurt me. That sounds like I'm a three-year-old. Uh, so what I do is I show anger. Well, so when we say to a guy, it's okay to show emotion. He's, he's only got one. He might think he's only got one gear, which is anger and negative rather than sensitive. But once a guy starts to get some healing in his life and starts to get some guys to process his emotions with him, he needs to, uh, then I, I think we've got to let, let guys cry and, and be who you are. And, and uh, you know, I know, you know, again, you don't want to babble all over yourself all the time. That would mean you need to get some kind of special help. But for a guy to cry, for a guy to be sensitive, for a guy to hurt, it's perfectly fine. I, you know, I, I bear, I'm, I'm just about a small, have a small role in helping the chaplain, the Washington Redskins. But I've watched gigantic, muscular, all-star guys cry when they're talking about their mamas, cry when they're talking about their daddies. I've even seen them cry when they've been hurt, you know, when they got a bone hanging out of their jersey, you know, the, the tears come to the eyes. And I wish that I could show that to eight-year-old boys and say, look, you don't want to be crying all the time. I mean, there's time to be respectful and, and rein it in a little bit. But this is what a real man does. And, and uh and just learn and best coach them in how to handle their emotions. They, we don't have these pent up, angry, violent men later in life. We don't know anything to do except break stuff and break people. So I, I'm a guy who believes that men ought to be emotional. I don't want troglodytes who are all shut down and not communicating. Uh, and I don't want just gushy guys who are always crying. Um, but I do want guys who are just normal with their emotions. It's nothing for me to be having a steak with a buddy and for him to tear up during the conversation. No big deal. Or for me, that's just life. You know, just like laughing, just like playing, just like pushing each other around on the football field. And I think we'll have a healthier culture if we teach each other, basically, how to handle these things. You know, I've seen in, in doing the movie and, and the ministry and just in, in certain areas that God's placed me in with, I mean, yeah, you said big, like gigantic man, like scared. Oh, gosh. Yes. They talking about their dads. They will cry and weep. 
I mean, it's, 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 it's awesome though. I love it because of oh, the yeah. genuineness, you know, it's that transparent. It's like, man, I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm not going to be afraid to be vulnerable because I think that's where all of us struggle. A lot of guys, especially it's even the word vulnerable guys is like, Whoa, freak out. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, on the size thing, I'm, I'm about six, four, about two seventy, two eighty. And uh, the guys I'm talking about, these linemen and the NFL, they make me they, you know, they make me look like I'm tiny. But I but I've sat with them and I'm not betraying anything to say. I'll I'll say, well, you know, which which your parents really have the most, and they'll start talking about their moms or their dads and tear up and put their hands at their hands. I'm not, and these are parents who are alive and going to be in the stands the next day. They're just so moved by what the parents did in their life, you know. So uh, we've got to be able to express gratitude. We've got to be able to express tenderness. I I, I like a guy who's bench pressing five hundred but can read a poem and tear up. You know what I mean? I like the yeah. guy who's connected both ways, you know, a guy who can rip the wall down if he's got to. Um, but at the same time is moved by his, the sweetness and love of his wife or moved by his little grandchild being put in his hands or moved by his country and the national anthem or whatever it is that's going to, you know, or, or seen in a movie. I've sat in movies where I've had to hide my face because I'm you know, about to sit there and cry like a little girl. It's okay. That's life. That's, that's what it's about. And you're much healthier when you've got, a full range of emotions, but you, but you've developed the character in coaching with other people to know how to handle it. There's been a lot of talk about toxic masculinity. And, and, you know, as I'm from this chair, as I'm sorting through and everything, people I've talked to and everything along the way, the last several years, I always kind of get stuck. I'm like, okay, you're, you're saying this is toxic masculinity, but we have to define masculinity first to yeah, even know what's toxic, right? Right. To know Absolutely. what's toxic versus healthy, and, and it's is it. What's your thoughts there? What what's the what's the disconnect? Well, I need to say that most of what the society today is calling toxic masculinity, I agree with. If you're sexually molesting a woman, uh, you know, I just I, there's a stat that I've just recently heard from the federal government that 20 percent of all women on the American college and university campuses are sexually abused. Well, if that's true, I'm opposed to it, of course. I'm opposed to the casting couch. I'm opposed to women being grabbed on the subway in New York. I'm opposed, I'm opposed, I'm opposed. The same thing the society's upset about, I'm upset about. But the word masculinity is not a bad word to me. Uh, I believe that men are made for something exceptional, just like women are. And I want men to play their role and walk out what they're made to be. Now, for me, that begins by knowing that there's a God who made me male and knowing there's a Jesus who, ma who uh, models masculinity. But then there's a whole lot more. Uh, when David turned to his son Solomon on his deathbed and say, go show yourself a man. Uh, he wasn't just saying, go show yourself a male. Solomon was in his 20s. There was no reason to say it. He was already a male. He was saying, go live out the lore, the craft, the skills, the values, the greatness of what it means to be a man. And by the way, when Stephen Mansfield is the great man he's made to be, women are safer, children are nobler, communities stronger, you know, other ethnicities for me are a little bit, little bit are more celebrated and maybe protected. You know what I mean? Uh, I live in DC. I've rounded a corner and seen a, seen a woman being hassled by uh, a homeless guy in that particular situation stood between the two of them. That's no big deal on my part. Lord, I'm, the, I'm a moving wall all by myself. But what I'm saying is, you know, things get better for the world when any one of us starts becoming the great man we're meant to be. There's more justice, there's more fairness, there's more safety, there's more nobility. Words are used for positive things and rather than tearing them down. There's more productivity. You understand what I'm saying. There's yes. more wealth even. I mean, if men do what they're supposed to do, there's even more wealth in the world. So uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm as much opposed to toxic masculinity as anybody I can see out there in the society. Uh, but I love what good men are, what true, true men are when they're living out a noble definition of masculinity and using all their powers for, for, for noble good. And, uh, that excites me. I, uh, I think the media and you talking about the masculinity piece, you know, it, it gets swayed so in such a negative manner. And I totally agree with what you said. Man, masculinity, we should be proud of that as yes. men, as, as the way God created us to be, right? Masculinity is good. <laughs> Just yeah. is up. But yes, the toxic piece, I, I hate seeing that because I have three daughters. So I'm very sensitive to that. You know, the, the talks we have, and it's so difficult for them to find a good guy who's got a strong faith, who, yeah. who has the ability to lead them in all of these things. And so we have those conversations and I'm not saying there aren't those out there, but with all the things that are put on young men nowadays, I can't even imagine growing up in today's culture with, with porn right at my fingertips, you know? Oh man, I know, I know exactly what you're saying. You know, I grew up again in Berlin and Berlin was a pretty perverse city. The Nazis had made it pretty much a sexualized city. And um, I mean, I, and, and then German culture was just different. I'd go home from school at the end of the day, turn on television to watch something, and there'd be fully nude soap operas. I mean, fully, just like porn, and at three in the afternoon. Um, but, I, but I was still better off than kids are today. Any kid with a cell phone in his pocket can just bring up the nastiest porn that's ever existed. But the real issue there, as you're saying, is that we've got to have a, a culture of noble manhood into, into which to initiate these kids. There's this African proverb that I love so much. It says, if we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down just to feel its warmth. That's a famous African proverb. And I, I believe that. I believe every church, every synagogue, every culture needs to have uh, a noble culture of men into which they initiate the boys. Uh, and I, of course, I start off my book, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, with a story about uh, Muslim guys in the Middle East when I was over there basically welcoming me to fatherhood when I never had been before. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not Jewish, so I didn't undergo a bar mitzvah, but I love the practice of our Jewish friends of having a bar mitzvah where the kid hits about 13 and they welcome him as a son of the covenant and put him through certain rituals. And then he's, he's expected to bear the burden of the, of the society with them. He's a, he's, a, he's a man in training. And, you know, and I'm not picking on it, but in Protestant world, you know, you can be born turn 13, graduate high school, college, graduate school, get married, have children, and never have any ritual marking any of that where Christian men come around you. So I'm trying to fight all that. But, but all that to say, I, th I think you're exactly right. That's what most men lack in their lives. And I think the boys, uh, the best solution for them is that the men get their stuff together. Amen. So we, as, as we wrap up here, I want one last question. And I like to do this quick little uh, five uh, rapid fire questions where you don't have a lot of time to think, but you have to answer. <laughs> All right, let's go. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, but before I get there, let me ask you one last question. Just an encouragement to the young millennial generation. If you could say one thing to a young man, let's say he's 20, 21, 22 years old uh, about being a man, what, what would you say? What encouragement would you give him? I, I would say that manhood is, is a great, and glorious joy in your generation unfortunately for my generation has not had good models so find older men you admire and who are strong and who walk with god and who know what manhood is and 
I know that the society, our society is trying to create a generation gap, you know, boomers and millennials and all that. Don't buy into that garbage. We need the older generation. They got their flaws. They got their weirdness. They screwed some things up. But find some older godly men and, and connect up with them and let them mentor a little bit. You know, the, the saddest thing in my life is that I went through so much stuff alone. When I first got married, I should have had men around me saying, here's what it means to be married. and Here's how you can be a good man. When I had my first child, I should have had men around me telling me that stuff. Whatever. I mean, all of it. Stepped into profession for the first time. I stepped into all of it alone like I was Adam, like I, like I was the first man doing it for the first time. Men have been doing what I was doing for you know, centuries, and I should have benefited from that wisdom. So find good men around you, pull them around you, get them to mentor you, get them to coach you, and uh, don't walk alone. Dude, I love it. That Even to this day as a 51-year-old man, I love list, sitting and listening to the grandfatherly type guy. I can yes. hours. You know, it's yes. like, and I, I had a, a, a pastor, somebody tell me one time, and I love the phrase. It's like, you know what? They've paid the dumb tax already. Yes, <laughs> you know exactly. That, no, that's, that's a good way to say it. to pay it. Because, yes. <laughs> yes. hey, and, and, I'm in the top 1% when it comes to the dumb tax. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say real quickly that I love the older guys, but I'll tell you, I benefit from guys a little younger than I am who've been through some things. You know, you, you and I could, I mean, we've got a lot of the same experiences, but you've got things, you're on top of things I'm not on top of. I need that. I may be on top of some things. Who knows? Maybe I handle a checkbook better than you do. Maybe you handle uh, fathering daughters better than I do. Let's learn from each other, man. Let's build a culture where we're coaching each other. I think that's what we're going to need to have. Amen, brother. Amen. Okay, rapid fire. Here we go. So first question is, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Oh my gosh. Uh, Winston Churchill. Nice. You know what? I was just sitting there thinking through all the books that you've written. <laughs> Who are you going to pick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he'd probably be drunk by the end of the dinner, but, uh, but I, I still with, I, I, he's so much my hero and has influenced my life so much. I've written about him, read everything I can about him. Uh, I'd have to say Winston Churchill. Man, his quotes alone, some of his quotes alone are just like, wow. Yeah. He would They're be worth it. They're worth it. Um, Okay. Beach or mountains? Mountains. No oh, question. Well, we talk I like, I like cold climate. I like cold climates. I tend to burn hot. So I like cold, not really a beach guy. Love being able to see at a distance, love fireplaces, love snow, uh, love the isolation, a little bit of a curmudgeon. So uh, mountains. Are we talking Rockies or Smokies? Uh, Rockies. All right. Rockies. Yeah. Yeah. Put me in a snowy cabin at the top of a mountain and let me see about a thousand miles out my window and I'm a happy man sitting by a fireplace with a pipe in my mouth. And you know, it's, <laughs> it's that thing too. It's always like, let's go conquer a mountain. Let me go ski. Let me yeah. go. I'm going to try the blacks, even though I'm horrible and I'll probably fall 15 times going down, but Hey, give me something to conquer. Right. That's right. That's right. With a nice mount over the fireplace. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Favorite movie of all time. Chariots of fire. Nice. Yeah. And then last one, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Ooh, one superpower. It would be time travel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my, my, my field's history, academics, background, most of my writing history. If I could have any power, I'd want to, I'd want to do time travel. Not only within my own life, like I said earlier, to fix some things in the past, but, uh, but all through, through time. Wouldn't it be then great? I'm gonna, like if I'm going to preach this weekend, I go back and actually watch Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount and then come back and preach it. That would, that would make you, that would make you some nice ministry. Well, and the time travel thing, you go back and then you'd have dinner with Churchill, right? 
No problem. Exactly. Then I lecture on Churchill at the university this weekend. Now that's going to be a lecture. <laughs> there you go. Hey, brother, I, I could talk to you for hours, man. I love what you're doing. Listen, I thank you so much. I'm so proud of you and what you're doing. I really, you're doing great stuff to impact our generation of men. And I'm really proud of you. So good job. Thank you, brother. One last thing. How can people connect with you? What's the best way? The, the best way to reach me is stephenmansfield.tv. I've got a website also for men, greatman.tv. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mansfield Writes. But, the, but if they, if they want to follow up on this conversation, the books, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men and Building Your Band of Brothers, available on Amazon. Um, that's, that's how you want to follow up and build from this conversation. So appreciate you asking. Thank you, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Good talking to you, man. And that is it for another episode of the Father Fag Podcast. Be sure to check out some of Stephen's books wherever books are sold. And don't forget to check out the Father Fact movie. Remember to hit that subscribe button if you're a regular listener. And please consider leaving us a review. The Father Fact is an outreach of the Perfect Father Ministries, Inc., which is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. Please consider a tax-deductible donation on our Patreon page or on our website at thefathereffect.com. Remember, your life is your legacy, and what you do and say every day is impacting your family and the generations to come. Thanks for listening to the Father Effect Podcast with John Finch. Please subscribe and leave a comment, too. To find out more, go to thefathereffect.com. That's thefathereffect.com.